You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Robert Billet, an environmental lawyer in Taft, Stinius, and Hollister LLP. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. As, as we know, there are tens of thousands, if not more, chemicals out there in our world being manufactured and have been manufactured. And of course, it varies by what country you're in, what jurisdiction you're in, but there's a very, very small number of those chemicals that are what we call regulated in any sense. You know, things that have any sort of health limits, for example, drinking water limit or a soil limit or any kind of standards. There's a very, very small set of those chemicals that we even test for or even know how to test for. So I think most people, particularly in the United States, for example, we assume when we turn the tap on and, and water starts to come out of our sink, we just assume, well, some, somebody's been testing that to make sure there's nothing harmful there. And the reality is we're only testing for the certain limited number of chemicals that we actually know to test for. for it. And even with those, you know, there's, it's, it's fairly limited information about how to test for them, at what level. You know, the, the PFAS chemical story is, is you know, a classic example of, of sort of the, the problem with that system. Here you have hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals in this class that are uh, viewed as being of concern because of their chemical structure and the toxicity data and the information that's been generated uh, about the ones we do know about. And really, Nobody's been testing for those chemicals up until just recently. We just now started actually requiring water suppliers, for example, to even start testing and looking for these chemicals. And even then, we still don't necessarily have enforceable standards in a lot of places for what, what is acceptable for having this chemical in the water. And so in, in reality, those of us out there uh, are basically consuming the water are, are kind of being used as guinea pigs to see what happens, you know, to folks that are exposed to this, to these chemicals. And unfortunately, in a lot of places like in the United States, we tend to be more reactive and we, we kind of wait to see how much data is accumulating about these chemicals before we actually start to take action to regulate them. The chemical that I talk about in the book exposure and that you see uh, depicted in the film Dark Waters or the documentary The Devil We Know, the chemical known as PFOA. It's just one of these PFAS chemicals. And what you see in that story, in those films and in the book, is how long it took for the information about just that one chemical to make its way out into the scientific community, to the regulators, to the public, to the point where you can actually start taking steps to regulate this chemical. Here's a chemical that was invented after World War II, was being put into massive use worldwide as early as the early 1950s. And it really the information about the toxicity, the health threat was being developed by the companies internally during the 60s and 70s. Yet the information about the, the threat from that chemical didn't start to make its way out to the rest of the world until late 1990s, early 2000s, when, when litigation and lawsuits began. And then even then, it's now been 20 years 
since that information first started to come out and we are still waiting for enforceable federal drinking water standards for just that one chemical. It just really highlights how difficult and slow the process is in the United States to regulate chemicals, even once we know that they're there and once we know that they pose a serious threat to human health and to the environment, it still is a painstakingly slow process. And, you know, unfortunately, because of that, uh, people end up having to go into court, you know, to get clean water and to get relief. And that, as a lawyer, I'll be the first one to tell you that sh that's not the way it should happen. People shouldn't have to do that. But because this is such a slow process, that's what's historically happened. Even when you have a dangerous chemical that poses significant threat to human health and the environment, even when the facts are known, look how difficult and how long it takes to move through the process to actually get safety standards set to protect people. So what are some success stories, you know, or what are, you know, how has DuPont, you know, maybe evolved their practices or other companies that you find um, positive going forward? You know, that's not sure I, I can point to really many positive uh, developments, unfortunately, in the PFAS world, because what we saw happen with, let's take PFOA, for example, when the information finally got out to regulators, the scientific community, the, the public about the, the hazards of PFOA, there was a positive development when the companies all decided, the ones that were still making that chemical, that they would stop making that chemical. In 2006, they entered into an agreement to phase out any further manufacture of PFOA in the United States. A good thing, that was, that was good. Uh, they were given 10 years to do that phase out, that the phase out would be finished by 2015. Unfortunately, what we saw happen was during that phase out of PFOA, the, the chemical in this family that has eight carbons, also called a C8 because of that, eight carbons. What happened is that some of these companies started bringing out replacement chemicals. And unfortunately, they were fairly similar to the ones that they were phasing out. For example, DuPont. Once they started phasing out the manufacture of PFOA, they started making a PFOA replacement chemical they called Gen X. And this was a chemical that instead of eight carbons, had six. In other words, they took two of the carbons off and started making this Gen X replacement chemical. And that chemical was then used to make some of these same products like Teflon that had been used, that they had been using PFOA in the past. Unfortunately, as the scientists start looking into these new replacement chemicals, what we're seeing is a lot of them share some of the same toxicity characteristics and concerns as the old ones. You hear them referred to as regrettable substitutions. For Gen X, for example, when the first cancer study came back, looking at the effects of the chemical on rats, they found that it caused the exact same three tumors in rats that PFOA did. So you now have scientists that are saying, maybe we need to look at the entire class of these chemicals. Instead of trying to regulate them and address them one at a time and take 20 years for each of these hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals, 
Can we address them in a more comprehensive way? So that's a positive development that people are now talking about. Is there a new way or is there a different way we should be approaching how we regulate these? So even though this regrettable substitution was not necessarily a favorable thing that happened, it's leading to some positive discussions about looking for different and better ways to address chemicals in, in not only the United States, but worldwide. You know, you, you sit back and you look at this, and you think, how does something like this happen in the United States during our lifetime? And essentially nobody even knows it's happening. And then once we, stu- we, we do finally realize this happened, why is it taking so long <laughs> to fix this or to regulate these chemicals? And I think what, what's really become, what really people are starting to, to, to focus on and realize is we've got some systemic problems, you know, in the way in which we regulate chemicals and the way in which, you know, data and science is generated that's necessary to move through this process. You know, there are some real hurdles and impediments to, to, to doing this. And hopefully we're going to come up with some solutions and fixes to this. But having people aware that this is the way it actually works. You know, this is the way this process works. That's critical. That's step one. Because I think a lot of folks, again, as we talked about earlier, just assume, you know, if there's something dangerous, it's regulated. There are these agencies that are out there that are doing all of this. You know, the reality is the agencies first have to be made aware that these chemicals exist. And unfortunately, they don't always have the information, you know, as we see with PFOA, for example, the manufacturers may have that information and just not disclose it or give it to them until it's forced out. And then what, unfortunately, you're dealing with a situation where you've got agencies that oftentimes are massively overworked and don't have the staffing, don't have the funding. You know, when you're talking about, for example, all these new chemicals that are coming out every day, all this information going into these agencies that are trying to get through all of this, analyze all of this, it's almost impossible to keep up with. So it's it's just a very difficult problem and one that I I think a lot of folks are rightly focused on right now, trying to figure out how do we fix this? Now that we know this problem is there, you know, how do we go about fixing and who should be paying for this? You know, that's one of the big debates going on right now. You know, this is not a problem that we, the exposed people, created. You know, this is a problem, frankly, that some corporations, particularly if you're looking at the PFOA, PFOS problem, that some, some corporations made a lot of money selling and making these materials and pumping them out into the environment, knowing that they would result in the kind of contamination problems we're dealing with now. You know, why should the public be spending billions of dollars to clean this mess up now or to fix these problems? Why shouldn't the ones who made the problem be the ones paying these bills? And that's a huge debate going on right now is who should pay to fix the problem? And I think it's likely to, uh, to be a debate that we see go on for quite some time. So as you think about uh, the future, um, you know, this planet, education, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, um, what were some life lessons that were important for you? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? 
I think one of the things I guess I have learned along the way is it's incredibly important to be able to step outside your comfort zone. You know, don't necessarily assume just because this is the way it's always been done, that that's the way you've got to do it yourself. You know, be open to new ideas, be willing to take a risk and to try to do something differently. If you see something that isn't working, even though that's always the way it's been done, or that some huge entity on the other side is, is, is doing whatever it is that's always been done that way, it can be changed. And as long as you have the, the dedication and the persistence to, to see it through, it can happen. It can be done. We hope you have enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.